Amen. Heavenly Father, we do worship your holy name today. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. And though the blindness of sin would keep us in darkness and death forever, the Holy Spirit has broken through. And we have every reason to rejoice this morning. We see you in this beautiful, incredible day that you have made. And we rejoice and are glad in it. We see you in the pages of your scripture. And we pray that you would reveal yourself through them in due course in this service. We see you in our lives as you have intervened, God, and miraculously ordered the events of our life to draw us to the cross, to encourage us and equip us for our calling. We see you, Lord Jesus, in the evidence of your Spirit's work and those we've prayed for and answers of prayer, Lord, that have rolled in over and above what we could ask or dream and imagine. Now, as we focus our attention on just a few of these this morning, I pray that our hearts would be quickened, that you would be glorified, and that your work through us, Lord Jesus, would grow as a result of this service today. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. At this time, I invite um, Jean and or Marissa to come up. And if you know Jean and Marissa, uh, you have the privilege, as I do, of being witness to believers in Christ. The Lord is alive and at work inside of them. So they have committed to share, and their exuberance and willingness to share is a testimony in and of itself. So I'm anxious to see what else the Lord has for us through their testimony. So. month I've been praying a lot and working a lot so praying at work mostly just about what I wanted to share this morning um, and a lot of what we've been going through recently I'm going to leave most of that to Marissa because she's got a um, more in-depth <laughs> description of it but I'm going to share a little bit of the background and leading up to these events and uh, I wanted to open with John 17. <laughs> When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one, the one only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I have had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them these words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Am I, I, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. 
While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the, word, the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, <clears throat> that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given to me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. I opened with the high priestly prayer because every time I read it, it humbles me a little more. The message from John 17 gives such a clear picture of what salvation really is. When I first came to Christ, my understanding of salvation was so backwards because of the watering down of the gospel that has become so prevalent in most evangelical churches today. I was told if you don't want to go to hell, ask Jesus into your heart and you won't. When you read John 17, it's clear that Jesus was praying for our salvation 2,000 years ago. In fact, this, moment, <clears throat> this was moments before a sinful man was to crucify him. How deep does he love us? He prays to the Father that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. He loves us so much that he desires that we become one with him and the Father, and to think that we have been teaching others that Christ is just freedom from hell. That is the mentality that I had for a long time, taking for granted salvation, in fact, spitting on it. I was saved around fourth grade, and for a period of time, for about a year, I was hungry for the word and for the Lord. But as I got into middle school, I found it was much easier to be accepted by my peers if I was a troublemaker. I didn't feel in my heart that I was the type of kid to sass back to the teacher or steal, but it was an easy crowd to get into, and I just figured, what the heck. I started smoking pot at the age of 12, and from that point on, I started my journey of backsliding. I continued to go to church, but around my friends, I was a different person. This continued for years and through high school and on. 
I would go through periods of deep conviction only to slide right back where I was. I know now that this is all stemmed from not appreciating what salvation really is. I don't want to get too deep into my childhood and the problems of my youth today because I really wanted to focus on Christ in my marriage and my family so we can save the rest of that for another day. But I just wanted to show a glimpse of where I was at with the Lord when this journey began. When I met my wife, I was in another deep backslide. I don't think I was even attending church regularly at the time, but I still considered myself to be a Christian. After we dated for a couple of months, I asked Marissa to marry me. I took marriage so lightly. I just figured that we got along so well, it seemed like the right time. I grew up in a broken family. My parents had divorced when I was four. My dad remarried a few years later, as did my mom. My mom got another divorce a few years after that. I was quite familiar with divorce. In fact, to my own shame, I actually often cont contemplated how many years Marissa and I could make it before divorce. I don't think forever was even on my radar. In spite of this, we got married, and then things started to get interesting. Suddenly, she didn't want to be my designated driver all the time. She didn't want to hang out with all my stoner buddies. I believe this was one of the first big moments of God's hand in my adult life that I can remember. At the time, I just got mad at Marissa for trying to change me, but now I know that the Lord was giving her a conviction that I had grown numb to. Eventually, as things progressed, I promised Marissa that I would stop smoking pot after our first child. I can still remember leaving the hospital while Marissa was in labor with Rudy to have my last smoke. Then the next big move of God came, my firstborn son. Marissa and I soon discovered that parenthood was a little more difficult than we had anticipated. We built a house and garrison on a piece of land that my parents had given me and started our new life as a family by racking up huge amounts of debt with no real idea if or how we would ever pay it off. God's work in Marissa continued to show while I struggled letting go of my old lifestyle. She would be heartbroken to find pornography on the computer and I couldn't see what the big deal was. We started attending church and I even started feeling convicted at times, but nothing really seemed to stick. Because of a change of employment, I found myself working in Pine River and living in Garrison. I would leave at six in the morning, get back to Garrison by six at night, and have to drive right past the house to the casino to go pick up Rudy, who was at a daycare center there where Marissa worked. By the time she got off work, both of us were in bed and we never saw each other. Eventually, we couldn't take it anymore. And an opportunity arose for us to move to Pine River and we jumped on it. We made horribly foolish decisions and found ourselves owning two homes, neither of which we could afford. To top it all off, the excitement of a new baby on the way was crushed when Marissa had a miscarriage. Soon came bankruptcy. Our life was crumbling apart before our eyes. All this time, Marissa had become bitter with me for not growing with her in the faith. I was constantly being bombarded with accusations of not leading our family or her being unequally yoked with me, all of which was true. One day I came home to find Marissa weeping and she asked me for a divorce. I remember the only emotion I felt was relief. 
Sure, I said. You, I get the house, you get the car, and we'll split the kid up equal time. It was no big deal for me. I was ready for it to end, and so was she. The couple from our church that we had been counseling with were crushed, and they tried to talk with us, but we didn't want to hear it. She moved out, and I moved on. My family and friends were nothing but supportive, as were hers. During our separation, which lasted about two months, I got right back into my old lifestyle. To get back into shape, I stopped eating. For two months, the only thing I consumed was alcohol or pot. The divorce papers were all ready to go. We just had to sign and file them. One night, for one reason or another, I just wanted to hang out with Marissa. I went over to her place and we watched a movie together. We ended up staying late talking about everything and I confessed I still had feelings for her, but she did not and the more we thought about it, the more we thought that there was no way it could work out. Here's where God's next big move came. The next morning I was horribly convicted to get into the word and the Lord led me to Isaiah 54. Sing, O barren woman who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations, and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a, light, a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth <coughs> when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion, with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and confronted, behold, I will set your stones in adamony and lay your foundation with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of car carbunicles and all of your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression for you shall not fear and from terror for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. 
I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me declares the Lord. I repented of my cold, heart, calloused heart and immediately went to church. I took joy in worshiping the Lord, and immediately the Lord told me that I needed my family. I talked to Marissa after church, who had been deeply convicted to come find me, as she knew the Lord was doing something. We went to see our pastor, who was very happy to see us, and began to counsel us. Marissa was more hesitant than me to reunite. She told him that she didn't have feelings for me anymore. He instructed her that out of obedience, the Lord, <coughs> out of obedience to the Lord in honoring our marriage, he would bless us with the feelings that we once had. So out of obedience, we moved back in together, which was a little awkward to say the least. It was like having a roommate, except that you had been married to that roommate for three years in the past. Marissa was quite hesitant to believe my transformation, but as things progressed, we grew closer. Then came our next big hurdle. As God began to bring us closer together, she confessed to me why she had been so hesitant in the first place. While we were separated, she had met someone, and they had developed a relationship. I think this was the hardest thing I ever had to submit to the Lord. We had been given a new marriage, and right out of the gate, we had this thorn in our relationship. We daily had to come together in prayer to fight against this intrusion into our marriage, and I finally knew how Marissa had felt in the past with pornography getting wedged into our relationship. The healing process was slow and painful, but we slowly rebuilt each other's trust and rebuilt our marriage. I truly believe had we not suffered through all this, our marriage would not have survived. It was God leveling the marriage that we had built and starting from scratch a new foundation rooted in the word and his promises for us. We grew closer together and got a firmer footing in the word. We went through more trials and hardships, but this time divorce was not in the back of our minds. We submitted ourselves to God's plan for us. And the more we gave up our own will, the more he moved in our lives. We had tried and tried to purchase a home again with our hopes being shattered. I remember Marissa crying to me, why does this keep happening to us? I assured her that God had a plan and we needed to trust him, although I didn't understand. It became clear later that the house we were trying to get just wasn't right for us. The Lord blessed us with the home we have now in his own time, and it's perfect for our family. But before we found our house, we were hard at work trying to take our lives over again in defiance to the Lord. Marissa went back to school, and the Lord blessed us with another pregnancy. At this time, we made the worst decision of our life. We decided if Marissa was to have her career, we couldn't afford any children. We willfully made ourselves barren out of our own selfish desires to be financially successful by getting a vasectomy. What seems to me now as chastisement for disobedience. Days after our vasectomy, Marissa went into labor early at seven months. She spent the next month in St. Cloud on bed rest, but by the grace of God, Marley was born healthy. It wasn't long before the Lord began to show our foolishness to us. Marissa found that working full-time and putting the kids in daycare became harder and harder. 
We were convicted to keep the kids at home, but by this time, with all the student loan debt we had racked up, we couldn't afford that anymore. We also began to see what a huge mistake it was to get the vasectomy and spent many nights praying in tears for the Lord to heal me supernaturally so we could have more children. This is about the time that we started attending Providence, and we were blessed with our home. We found solid doctrine as well as good fellowship and finally felt we were at home. Our relationship flourished, although we were still in conviction that our family was out of order. With both of us working, we found it difficult to find our roles in our marriage. Marissa wanted to be home, but we couldn't afford it. I wanted more from her at home, but she had to work. What had we gotten ourselves into? Then came another big move from the Lord. I was given a job offer in Williston, North Dakota, which could provide enough finances for Marissa to stay home, and even more. We were torn. We had just found a great church and bought the perfect home. Why leave? As we prayed about it, it became clear to me that this was the Lord's will for us, and we began yet another journey. We moved out west, and at first it was a nightmare. We could not find a good church, and my schedule was crazy, and we wondered if we were being obedient to the Lord or not. God soon gave us another huge blessing in our lives. We met the Banks family in Williston and started attending their church and their Bible studies. We found great fellowship and solid doctrine and became part of something bigger. In a town of such terrible things, we found the Lord at work. We paid, paid off lots of debt and began saving for the future. Maybe Williston was our new home. Once again, we were planning instead of praying. Not even a year after moving, the Lord called us back to Minnesota. I remember when we were talking about it, it didn't even make sense. Financially, we would be over $500 a month in the hole by moving home, but I knew it was time. The Lord had given us the finances to get the reversal done, and, when we, and we had even considered postponing it until we got our finances figured out. But out of obedience, we went ahead with the reversal and the move. When we moved home, we found that we were in a totally different place than when, when we... <clears throat> than we were when we first left Providence. We realized how complacent we had become and made efforts to get more involved in the church. Suddenly we were not trying to come up with excuses for missing Wednesday night or prayer, but found ourselves hungry for fellowship. The Lord had given us a new hunger for the word and for family devotions. But then something we never expected happened. We began our next big trial. A couple of days before the reversal, Marissa was struck with a spiritual attack, one so terrible I still don't understand fully what happened. She was not herself. I thought she was going crazy. Despite this attack, we had the reversal done. The next few months I will save for Marissa as her testimony of this struggle is much more detailed than mine. But I can tell you this. Without Ken and Sean constantly being for, there for us, and without Sunday morning prayer, we would never have made it through this. We found prayer to be absolutely essential to just making it through the day, and we were so grateful for everyone constantly praying for us and bearing our burden with us. During this trial, it seemed our reversal was in vain, as doctors were telling Marissa she was schizophrenic and in no condition to have children, and financially we were in bad shape. Our savings had almost diminished, and we were going backwards every month. But here's my favorite part. The Lord is always faithful. If we submit ourselves to his will, we will always be blessed. 
I can't tell you exactly why we continue to go through trials after salvation, but I can assure you it is to his glory. Everyone who has been praying with us through this trial now can rejoice with us. The Lord has blessed me with my own business, allowing me to be self-employed, and he has helped and blessed us with lots of work. The Lord has delivered Marissa from her trial, and although she still struggles, she can praise the Lord for bringing her through one of the toughest battles of her life. And finally, he has blessed us with another pregnancy, another child to raise for his glory. Let us all give thanks to the Lord for his great mercy on all of us and the many blessings he showers upon us daily, even during our afflictions. I would like to close with a quote from Charles Spurgeon, which is a perfect segue into Marissa's testimony. <clears throat> I bear my witness that the worst days I ever have had turned out to be my best of days. And when God has seemed most cruel to me, <clears throat> he has been the most kind. If there is anything in this world for which I would bless him more than for anything else, it is for pain and affliction. I am sure that in these things the richest, tenderest love has been manifested to me. Our father's wagons rumble most heavily when they are bringing us the richest freight of bullion of his grace. Love letters from heaven are often sent in black-edged envelopes. The cloud that is black with horror is big with mercy. Fear not the storm. It brings healing in its wings. And when Jesus is with you in the vessel, the temptest only hasten the ship to its desired haven. Thank you. like Jean, um, that the Lord would just give me the words for my testimony, and it was about two days later I woke up and I wrote out like five pages. <laughs> so um, I'm just going to read to you what I wrote. Uh, back in 2009, while I was pregnant with our daughter Marley, my husband and I decided that he would have a vasectomy. Looking back, we had made this decision out of fear. Fear of another miscarriage, as I had already had three, and fear of not being able to provide for more. Not even a year later, I was introduced to a magazine called Above Rubies. The first issue that I read <coughs> was full of stories of people who had chosen to permanently cut off their fertility, but then, through the Lord's conviction, chose to get it reversed. I also had, uh, I also had read a verse in Genesis that cut me to the heart. Genesis 38, verses 9 through 10 says this, But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. <clears throat> God values life so much that even the wasting of Onan's seed was punished by death. In the Bible, barrenness was looked at as a curse, and Jean and I had willfully chosen to be barren. The Bible clearly states that children are a blessing and heritage from the Lord. We had basically rejected God's blessings. I went to Jean and told him what I had read and that I felt like what we had done was wrong. 
At first, Jean thought I was crazy, but then about three or four days later, Jean got home from work, walked through the door with the most serious look on his face and said to me, we made a huge mistake. He told me that the Lord had brought deep conviction upon him that day. After that, we began the journey of repentance. At first, we prayed that the Lord would supernaturally heal Jean, but then God laid it on our hearts to reverse what we had done. We knew God was calling us to be obedient and letting go of the control we thought that we had over our fertility. We knew getting the reversal procedure done wouldn't guarantee more children, although the Lord had changed our hearts to desperately want more, but rather we wanted to have the procedure out of obedience. Many of you know <clears throat> that this past November that act of obedience came to pass. What some of you don't know is that while God was at work to rebuild, Satan was at work to tear down. Four days before we got on the plane to go to Oklahoma, the attack began. I was actually sitting right there in church when out of nowhere, as if a fiery dart had literally just been thrown at my head, I heard, there is no Holy Spirit. I left church in utter confusion, but that was only the beginning. The rest of the day and that night, I tried not to think about it too much and went to bed. When I woke up the next day, it was as if there were a thousand scary voices telling me that my faith and my God were not real. They were telling me that I hated Jesus, that I was an atheist, and that the resurrection didn't really happen. I was completely terrified. I had no idea what was going on or why it was happening. All day and all night long, this force of darkness would follow me around, accusing me and condemning me. There was a constant stream of blasphemies going through my mind that would not cease. What was supposed to be an exciting time turned into a torment. The entire trip to and from Oklahoma was torture. My entire body shook uncontrollably. I constantly threw up and I could not eat anything. We had called Ken during the trip <clears throat> to let him know what was going on. We had decided that we would meet for prayer as soon as we got back. We did meet with Ken and Nikki, and I also received prayer from Janet the next day after church. The day after that, it was, this, it was as if this demonic force had completely lifted. It was gone as quickly as it had come. I just remember standing in my kitchen in complete shock. What just happened? Why did it happen? Where did that come from? Even though, even though these accusers were gone, I was not okay. Then the introspection began. I began to question my salvation and sink into the deepest, darkest depression I have ever experienced in my entire life. I had wondered if God had allowed this to happen to me, to show me that I wasn't his. Am I going to hell? If I'm not saved yet, did I somehow blaspheme against the Holy Spirit and now it's too late for me? I lived each day in constant fear and despair. I would spend hours every day reading my Bible, but it seemed that every verse I read just condemned me to Sheol. I would constantly cry out to the Lord, but all I felt was rejection. I sank deeper and deeper into depression. I still couldn't eat and I couldn't sleep. I was losing weight and didn't even want to get out of bed in the morning. About a week had passed, 
And then once again, all of those blasphemies came back into my mind like a flood. Not again. How was I going to live through this? There were times that I got so low that I actually considered, considered ending my own life. What hidden sin did I need to confess to make this stop? I spent hours confessing every sin that I could think of and hours pleading for mercy and forgiveness. I felt completely alone, like God had left me and did not want me. I would scream to Jesus, Jesus, please save me, don't leave me. How can I possibly be yours with all of these horrible things going on inside of me? I would like to note that during this entire time that this was taking place, I was counseling sometimes daily with the pastor in Williston that we had been under who became like a brother to me. It turns out that my brother Sean had gone through to a T this exact same thing about four years prior. I never even knew that he had gone through this until I was going through it myself. Every day was an inner war. I needed constant reassurance from my husband, Ken, or Sean that these thoughts were not my own and that I was saved. Yet I still doubted, I still questioned, but for some reason I could not go a single hour without calling on the name of Jesus. One night while calling out to him, he gave me a vision. I could literally see myself before Jesus lying at his feet. I couldn't see his face, but I could see myself looking up at him. I was also holding something in my arms. He said to me, give me this burden. I looked up at him and said, but Jesus, I don't wanna hurt you with my sin anymore. Then he said to me, if you don't give this to me, that would make my death for you in vain. I then saw myself handing to him what was in my hands. It was my burden. That night I felt free. I thought it was finally over, but when I awoke the next morning, it began again. The doubt, the fear, the introspection. Why couldn't I let this go? At this point, this trial was taking its toll on my family and my marriage. My husband and I considered getting me on medication, even though deep down I knew that God had delivered me from that years ago. I even went and saw a psychiatrist who, of course, diagnosed me with schizophrenia and gave me some antipsychotic drugs to start taking. I remember sitting there thinking, if I get on this medication, how can we have another baby? I told the psychiatrist that my husband and I wanted more children, that I was worried about taking the medication. Her response was this, you better not even be thinking about having children in your condition because you're having some pretty serious symptoms and pregnancy tends to make schizophrenia worse. Thank the Lord that we have a mighty God who doesn't work inside the boundaries of the medical community. Because as you know, Jean and I are expecting our third child and I can tell you that these so-called symptoms have not gotten worse. In fact, I have only been getting better and better by the Lord's hand. The whole time I was sitting in that office explaining to her what was going on, I felt like I was selling my soul. 
I knew inside that this was not the answer to a sin and heart problem. I went home and took one pill that night. That pill was also my last pill. I couldn't do it. I knew that that was not going to fix it. Even though I didn't take the medication, I still kept looking for something that would fix my problem. I tried homeopathic remedies. I thought about a change in diet. I tried supplements, but none of this was going to solve a spiritual condition. I continued to counsel with Ken and Sean. A lot of times when I talked with Sean, he rebuked me. He told me that I was selfish and man-centered and that I was just looking for a way out of my circumstances. He told me that all I needed to do was just trust in Christ and believe and that he alone would bring me through this. He told me to stop relying on myself and to look to the righteousness of Jesus. He constantly told me to walk by faith. Some of you may think that his advice was harsh, but it is exactly what I needed to hear. When I finally started actually listening to Sean, Ken's, and Jean's advice is when I started getting better, and those other things began to lose their power. While the rebukes from Sean were exactly what I needed, I was also receiving encouragement and assurance from Ken. There were times when Jean, Ken, and I would have to meet or sometimes talk daily so that Ken could reassure me that there was fruit in my life and that I did have faith. I, of course, have to tell you... how thankful I am for my husband who stood by me with unshakable faith during every moment of this trial. While I had kept looking for a means that God would use to bring me through this, he had surrounded me with one all along. The body of Christ was his means. If my brothers and sisters had not been praying for me, and Jean, Ken, and Sean had not held so strongly to their convictions and had not been willing to go through the fire with me, I probably wouldn't even be standing in front of you today. I am so thankful that the Lord did not allow my feeble attempts to heal myself work out. I was forced to just walk by faith and not by sight through the fire with Jesus right by my side. There was a lot of work that he was doing and is still doing in me that there is a lot of work that he is still doing in me through this that needed to be rooted out. I was beginning to see that the root issue of all of this was bondage of fear and self-pity. I had been, been rejected so many times in my life before, so why wouldn't God do the same thing? I had kept looking to myself and what I could do to try and earn God's love and my salvation instead of looking to Christ's righteousness and his grace. This trial has been his grace. He has used this to show me how wicked, prideful, selfish, and sinful I am. He has used it to show me how completely helpless I am without him and how I really don't have the control that I thought I did. I didn't realize until going through this that I had been living and acting my whole life out of fear and self-justification. I have been so afraid of messing up and always thought that God was mad at me and just waiting to strike me down. I couldn't see him as a loving father who loves me unconditionally. I was trying to live under the law to please God, but in reality, I was becoming a Pharisee. Just before we had moved back from Williston, I had prayed a prayer that God would purge me from my pride. 
This trial has definitely been humbling. I knew Jesus was the Lord. I knew he died for sinners, but I couldn't understand how he could be my Lord and how he died for me. How can he love me when all I did was question his goodness, his grace, his forgiveness, and all the times that he had assured me that I was his when what I really deserve is hell upon hell? Wasn't that enough for me? How can God love someone like that, like me? How can he possibly love someone who has done nothing but doubt him for the last year? The answer is this. That's the point. Christ came not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. He came for the sinner, the sick, and the lost. I can relate to Paul when he says that he is the chief of all sinners. I have felt that same way. I have absolutely nothing good in me apart from Christ, and I have nothing, absolutely nothing to offer him, yet he has saved me. It is still absolutely mind-boggling to me some days that God would send his only son to die for people like us, like me. I am blown away by God's goodness, faithfulness, and unconditional love towards his children. As the darkness continues to lift and the cords of death slowly fall off one by one, I grow more and more confident in who Jesus is and trust less and less in myself. I am learning to rely and trust completely and only in him and his word and trust that there is absolutely nothing that can separate me from the love of Christ Jesus. What an amazing God we serve. No plan of the enemy or anything else in life is out of God's control. Not even death itself can compete with the power of Christ. Though I know there will be more trials, more tears, more suffering, it does not compare to the eternal glory that awaits. The battle is already won and the enemy has already been defeated. I can't wait to see the precious face of my Savior Jesus and be able to love him in all his glory. He is my precious Redeemer and the anchor of my soul when the storm is raging all around me. I love him more than anything. I will end with this analogy that Ken gave in one of his sermons a few months ago, which my wise husband later added on to. Ken said this, Sometimes when a sheep is going astray, heading towards the edge of a cliff, the father in his grace and mercy breaks that sheep's leg and carries that sheep to keep it close to him. My husband later told me, Marissa, you will get through this, but that sheep may have to walk with a limp for a while. So here I am, that sheep with a broken leg, being carried by the father, who in his time will let me out to pasture again when my wound is healed. I may have to limp, but at least next time when the storm comes, I'll run straight into the loving arms of the Good Shepherd. Praise the Lord. Bow your head in prayer with me for a moment, if you would. Oh, Heavenly Father, what is there to do after listening to an amazing testimony, testimonies like that, than to offer you praise and worship you so deserve? There is no way the wisdom of man 
and every effort and every expert could ever come up with an answer to life's problems the way we've just heard, and that's just a handful. Every one of us in this room has experienced to some degree, probably, Lord, if they know you, certainly something along these lines. Where in spite of ourselves and our sin and circumstances, you stepped in with your miraculous power and delivered us for your name's sake. Oh, great heavenly Father, open our eyes to see more of your interaction in our lives. And teach us, Lord Jesus, that the grounds of our life and our eternal life is worthy of worshiping you for and remembering daily that we might grow in our faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm going to gladly shorten my message this morning. If you would turn with me to Psalms chapter 26. The title of this morning's message is The Posture of Integrity. Among the closing prayer requests of the previous psalm, Psalm 25, David prays in verse 20, O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. And finally, he says, 22, Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. David demonstrates in the next psalm, Psalm 26, what it looks like when integrity and uprightness preserves believers. I couldn't help but add as an illustration and introduction to this message something from Gene's own testimony. He said that when he first came to Christ, his best understanding of Jesus was something akin to fire insurance to save us from hell. And that's as far as it went. The vision for salvation, as Gene well mentioned, and goes far beyond merely saving us from the wrath to come, but conforming our life and lifestyle and giving us testimony to His glory that has a transformative effect in our whole life. And I don't need no further illustration to draw on than just recall to your attention what we have just heard. And now we look at David's life and we see evidence of that kind of transformative effect. He cries for it. He knows he would be lost as Marissa felt like she would unless salvation took root and foothold in his life. May integrity and uprightness preserve me. In the next chapter, verse 20, or chapter 26, I labeled my message the posture of integrity because David draws on posture or position like walking, sitting, handling, abiding, standing, and assembling to describe, to help us understand what it looks like when integrity starts to work its way into our life as a consequence of our life being changed by God's grace in the first place. Psalm 26 aptly flows from Psalm 25. It expounds the effects of integrity applied to the life of a believer. Even as we see it from the perspective of a pre-New Testament saint, it nevertheless overflows with New Testament reality, especially from the benefit of interpreting Psalm 26 in light of what Christ has revealed and sealed in His death. David describes integrity applied to his life, and he also rests on this fruit and evidence of the Holy Spirit in his own life as assurance of his standing before the Lord and judge of the universe. David was well acquainted with the character of the Lord and his attributes. We've mentioned in, in messages recently that we don't, we don't see far enough who God is or we're short-sighted in our vision 
of God and His character and attributes if we don't affirm Him as an omniscient, all-powerful judge of all the universe. And if we don't minister and interact and see ourselves in light of the fear of Him in that regard, and then run to the grace of Jesus Christ as our only means to justify us, justify us, a legal term, before the judge, then we have no legal standing on the final judgment when we pass from this life. As the Word says, it's appointed man once to die, and after that, the judgment. But David recognizes that the Lord is at work in his life, and he cites evidence of it as grounds for his assurance that as he stands before his judge, because of the grace that that God supplied him, that he would be determined righteous. An alternate title for this message could also be, I love this word, the amplitude of holiness. Amplitude refers to the extent of dignity or excellence or splendor. Could be the range or quality, property or process of a property, a process or a phenomenon. The question is then that Psalm 26 answers, what is the quality, the range of the quality? What are the properties? What is the process? And what is the phenomenon we experience in salvation that is holiness taking its root and foothold in our life? The amplitude of holiness. If Christ's death and the gospel, if Christ's death is powerful to save us from hell and to initiate sanctification in the life of a believer, what does that look like as we continue now to live according to those terms? Answering the question, how then shall I live? First of all, David describes integrity as walking. Understand when holiness and its amplitude takes place in your life, it's going to show itself and be revealed through your walk as David describes it. Point number one, integrity is walking. Verse one, Psalm 26. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. He says again in verse three, referring to this amplitude of holiness in terms of walking, the posture of integrity, for your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. Finally, as we close uh, towards the end of this chapter, David says in verse 11, but as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. But don't leave that verse without recognizing the next phrase, redeem me and be gracious to me. Two analogies come to mind or two pictures or ideas that are attached to integrity as walking jump out of the page for me. And the first is that when David refers in verse 3 to the steadfast love of the Lord, he understands as I take his poetry to divulge that keeping the steadfast love of the Lord before his eyes allows him to walk in faithfulness. Integrity as walking is a reality for us if our eyes stay fixed on the steadfast love of the Lord. A helpful analogy maybe to attach to this is, could be framed by this question, how much time can you spend focus on anything besides the road before disaster ensues while driving? Today we have a number of distractions at our immediate disposal. We can check our text messages, email, we can voice dictate, we can do all these certain things in our phone, and I'm as guilty as the next guy of drifting over the center line to my great shame because I have not kept my eyes on the road, and it's impossible for me to adjust without keeping in front of me 
where I'm supposed to go. And in a similar way, integrity as walking can only take place in our life. Disaster will soon ensue if we do not keep the steadfast love of God in front of us. It's like watching the road. How do we walk as we ought? How is the amplitude of holiness experienced in the walk of a believer? By remembering the steadfast love of the Lord. That is a great reason to come to church on Sunday, every week. To do more than that, to stand before His presence in prayer and confession of sin if necessary, reading your, your word, reading His word in your time before Him soaking it in, taking communion regularly with the saints, all of these serve in part to keep the steadfast love of the Lord in front of us, our eyes on the road, so that we can walk in the posture of holiness. Secondly, David reminds us in verse 11, but as for me, I shall walk in my integrity, And he doesn't close that sentence without saying, redeem me and be gracious to me. Don't take this verse as self-aggrandizing confidence. David knows that there is no assurance, is no assurance that he is walking righteously, that he is walking on the footsteps of holiness without the Lord redeeming him and being gracious to him. Redemption and grace are essential to walking in integrity. I believe these verses beautifully illustrate that it is the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God by sovereign application that enables a life of obedient faithfulness. Nevertheless, obedient faithfulness is our calling. And when we keep the steadfast love of the Lord in front of us, then we can walk accordingly. And we can have an assurance like David has that we are in the good graces of the Lord because His grace is manifestly evident in working through us, putting one foot in front of the other towards Him, His call for our lives. Secondly, let's explore integrity as sitting. The posture of integrity is also described described in this term sitting, where David chooses to sit and where he does not sit. For your steadfast love in verse 3 is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. He goes on to say in verse 4, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of the evildoers. I will not sit with the wicked. I will not sit with the wicked. I will not sit with men of falsehood. I refuse the consortium of evildoers. Reminds us of Psalm chapter 1. We opened this series two years ago with these words. Psalm 1, 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, And listen to this, again, these illusions, the posture of holiness. Nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. There is a commentary, George Swinnick, who is writing on this term, this position of sitting. And it's a posture, he says, that denotes three things, choice, pleasure, and staying or abiding. If you decide to sit somewhere, you're doing it because you have made a choice. You know, sometimes we just have to walk to get somewhere, and where we're going is more the reason why we're walking, but when we choose to sit, that is a place that we've chosen to stay. There's a certain pleasure and joy that we've taken that is motivated in what that sitting promises that motivates our action to do so. So when we sit somewhere, as David describes this posture of holiness, where we sit is where we choose to reside, where we take pleasure in residing, and where we are content, most content, most comfortable, most at home. We could perhaps add to that consorting. 
which is this idea of associations, of fraternizing or unity or partnership. David refuses, refuses to assume that posture of sitting, finding any pleasure in staying or abiding or unifying himself with anything outside of holiness. Holiness. If we find ourselves falling short of this, and I certainly do, repentance is in order. Lord, where am I most comfortable? Where do I find myself satisfied? Where do I glean my greatest source of identity? May that be in you. May it be in the beauty of holiness. Integrity as sitting reminds us of Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. It reminds us of 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And in light of these verses, we could say that is, don't choose to take pleasure in, to stay or to abide or to consort, associate or fraternize with things that do not share a value with the holiness of God. This is the posture of integrity, being mindful and conscious of where you're sitting, as it were. And when we are mindful and conscious, we can tell that we might be sitting in a place that is abhorrent to holiness. And what do we do? We take a different posture of holiness. We stand up and we walk away. And God gives us the grace to do that as well. Thank God the posture of holiness includes repentance. Point number three, integrity as handling. Now, there's this posture of things to do with the hands that David uses and draws on to illustrate to us the amplitude of holiness, the posture of integrity. He says in verses 6 through 8, I wash my hands in innocence. I go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the, inhabit the habitation of your house, the, the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men. And notice the contrast, again, referencing hands and the posture we see here in verse 10. In speaking of these wicked ones, these bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. This is a poetic parallel, it strikes me, of Deuteronomy 16. A great reference, I can't resist turning you there. Go to Deuteronomy 16 if you would. I want to read to you just briefly a commandment, something to do and something to avoid. The something to do has to do with the feast of booths, one of these feasts that Israel as a nation was commanded to be faithful to, and then the avoidance was something not to do in relationship to their civil affairs. Verse 13, Deuteronomy 16, you shall keep the feast of booths seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine presses. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful. We're talking about this overflow of blessing. Now verse 16, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that you will choose at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. And listen, they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing that the Lord your God has given you. That is his offering, his tithe. He doesn't appear empty-handed. He brings something to offer God in worship in his hand, something presumably that he has gleaned from the prosperity that was promised previously. Now we have a commandment, something not to do in verse 18. 
You shall appoint judges and officers in your towns that the Lord your God has given you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. However, verse 19, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of righteousness. A bribe takes us away from the posture of integrity. It is not akin to what righteousness demands. Verse 20, justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. What is David saying? He's saying that his worship is in the spirit of Deuteronomy's commandments. I'm bringing to you in my hand an offering. I'm washing my hands in innocence. The labor of the temple comes to mind. I go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud. He's offering a sacrifice of praise and telling all your wondrous deeds, whereas the evil and the wicked man does not do any such thing. What is in their hands? Verse 10, in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. Integrity as handling. What do we hold on to? What motivates us? And what do we purpose to do with our hands? These are, this is the poetic language that David is using here. Do we, or first of all, do we embrace, handily embrace God's ordained means of cleansing? You see, in the Old Covenant, the laver represented cleansing. The priest would ceremonially wash his hands. For us, it's fulfilled in our temple, as it were, Jesus Christ in his sacrifice, and we are washed clean in his blood. When we assume the posture of integrity, we do so as cleansed and righteous because of the cleansing power of his blood. And then we pick up in our right hand worship that is worthy after contemplating that truth. I praise you, Lord, because the righteousness of Christ is mine and his blood has saved me. And that's how we go before the altar. And that's how we offer the sacrifice of praise. And that's how we lay down our lives as a living sacrifice. Accordingly, we embrace God's ordained means of cleansing. For David in this temple imagery, he was talking about the innocence that is assured through obedience to Christ, embracing his means to be justified, to be made holy, to be set in the posture of holiness, and then to pick up that which he ought which is worship and praise, take his offering before the Lord. Secondly, it's important for us to remember when we're judging our own lives according to the standards of Scripture that these parallel passages, especially in Deuteronomy, emphasize that we should not come to the Lord with the wrong thing in our hands, take up the wrong thing, and in short, just to give you the principle, perhaps we could say it like this, we should not pursue any short-term gain at the expense of holiness, integrity, faithfulness to the word of God. Taking a bribe is a short-term gain. It benefits the bottom line in the near term. But if it violates God's word in so doing, it is assuming the posture of the evil one, the bloodthirsty man, the hands that are full of evil devices, that which can benefit me the soonest and the fastest. When we weigh usually our society today certainly, and our sin even more certainly, when we weigh the options of the risk-reward ratio of our day-to-day life, it's so important to see that the true reward is holiness, not the soonest, most tangible benefit to us. 
If that could be offered as a sacrifice, so let it be in order that we may not embrace short-term gain, fill our hands with things that are outside of the word and the commandment of God at the expense of integrity, but instead to be faithful to him and his word, integrity as handling. Number four, integrity as abiding. There's a habitation and dwelling place that David describes for the Lord himself. He's proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling of God's wondrous deeds, but where is he doing it? In verse 8 we read, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house, the place where your glory dwells. I do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men. Integrity as abiding, habitation, and the dwelling of the glory of the Lord was where David preferred to be. Better is one day in your courts, he says, than a thousand elsewhere. Better to be in the good graces and the favor of the Lord, a poor man, than to be a rich man and to be distant from the fellowship of the beloved. Remember David's life before he became king, this man years spent as an exile, as a fugitive, as it were, running for his life. Perhaps David's perspective afforded him the correct affections. By the time he had finally gained his kingdom, a measure of security and fellowship and favor with the people around him, he treasured that fellowship so that he wanted to spend every waking moment, if he could, in the assembly of the saints, in the fellowship of the believers. Let us draw from David's love for the fellowship and the presence of the Lord and ask for that same perspective to be given to us, that we would be pleased to dwell where the conditions of, of God's favor are satisfied and where His glory resides, as it were, to dwell in the presence of the Lord, fellowshipping with His people. And again, by contrast, what's the alternative? Well, the imagery here reminds me of an individual who refuses to tolerate any dirt on their floor, any dust, any accumulation in foreign material will be swept clean from the floor of God's holiness. David cries out, don't let me be the refuse of your cleansing power. In verse 9, don't sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men. By your grace, let me be a fixture in the household of God that gives you glory. Let me not be a blight on your kingdom that must be swept clean from the floor of your holiness. Let me be pleased to find habitation in your house. Let me be at home there. Accept me. On your terms, I submit, I surrender. You are my Lord. You are my God. Redeem me. Be gracious to me. Let me keep your steadfast love before me. Integrity as abiding. Number five, integrity as standing. David declares in verse 11, verse 12, My foot stands on level ground. In the assembly, I will bless the Lord. He has said at the beginning in verse 1, Vindicate me, O Lord. I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. David understands that his heart and his mind, or we could say by poetic extension, every aspect of his being, must be on the table to be proven, tried, and tested, to be fair game for the Lord to convict so that he can stand with both legs functional, both legs strong, as it were, and therefore, on level ground. May our confession and our decisions be in unity. May our walk and our claims to salvation and being born again 
be in unity and in tandem with our daily walk in decisions, love, and affections. And this, the posture of integrity as it's expounded, is really the cry and plea. It's the answer to the prayer, again, that David cried out, may integrity and uprightness preserve me. May the effects of holiness, of righteousness, take their foothold in my life so that my feet may stand on level ground. May all the of my life and soul be on equal standing like legs matching in length on my firm foundation who we know and understand in the fullness of revelation jesus christ final point integrity as assembling and this one is of course similar to abiding david comments in two places again by way of contrast on the on assembly that is gathering together of like-minded individuals in verse 5 of chapter 26, he says, I hate the assembly of evildoers. I will not sit with the wicked. David, nevertheless, loved another assembly. He cried out to be found there. He says in verse 12, My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. This confession, this benediction at the end of the psalm reminds me of the closing of the previous again. He says, redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles, having prayed a very personal and intimate prayer that God would intervene on his heart's behalf. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. But David did not close this psalm, nor the one previous, on an introspection that denied the greater purposes of God, didn't. Uh, treasure and revel in God's glory and didn't see that ultimately David would find most satisfaction in serving God's purposes that extended far beyond him. Instead of closing on a very personal note, he chooses to do it this way. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord or redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. There will be an assembly, the greatest in all of history. And ultimately, this will be the fulfillment of this psalm. And we see the picture all throughout Scripture. When the wheat and the tares are separated, and the wheat is gathered into sheaths and placed in the barn, symbolizing God's harvest and storehouse, we will be gloriously aligned with the fruit of the seed of the Word of God that has sprouted in fertile soil, and produced a great harvest of souls for the almighty husbandman. And we will join in unity, perfect unity, as Jesus prayed, and that prayer will be answered, that Gene read from John 17. And we will love every moment. And when we consider the alternative, horror and fear ought to immediately rush in to our minds, because there will be another assembly, the assembly of the wicked. But no longer... Will they be allowed in their deception any length of time to think for a moment that they have successfully declared the autonomy, their autonomy from the Lord? They will be gathered together and bound as tares and burned with everlasting fire. Ultimately, these are the two assemblies. The assemblies of the tares that will burn in the lake of fire eternal and the assembly of the sheaths grain that will rejoice and glorify their husbandmen for all eternity. The sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares, the marriage supper of the lamb. Imagine the feasting on that day. Do you think you will care who you sit next to? 
No, you will rejoice, you will have perfect fellowship with whoever the great master of the feast sits you next to. In fact, if you didn't know him in this life, boy, you'll have fun getting to know them in the next. And as you hear their testimony, something like what Gene and Marissa just shared, you will be in awe with rapt attention as the overflowing grace and mercy of God is evident in the testimony of these saints that are sharing with you in this great supper and you can't see the end of the table except for the light emanating from the head where Jesus Christ shines forth in all His radiance and glory and what a great assembly that will be. David loved these thoughts. He sang about them. He wrote about them. You can see it through his psalms. David had a different heart disposition than his son Solomon. There was anguish in David's heart that he lived in a comfortable house while there remained no house for the Lord in the land. That was a significant measure of his heart. David was a man in spite of his sin that God overcame by his grace who was postured in integrity. His son, however, if you read the schematics, Solomon was able to build a temple for the Lord, but if you read the schematics of the temple compared to his own home, his own home succeeded, you know, it, it eclipsed the temple in size and in riches and wealth and cost. That was a different heart. I'm afraid sometimes that we manifest the heart of Solomon and not the heart of David. I'm not talking strictly about money, though that can be a good measure. But are we most at home and comfortable in areas outside the assembly of the beloved? Or do we rejoice and long for these times when we can meet together and your family can meet together around family devotions in the evening? How would you answer this question? Did you look forward to coming to church today with an attitude of excitement and joy similar to that which is inspired by the promise of heaven? When you came to fellowship with God's people this morning, did it feel like you were going to a heavenly gathering? I mean, we can sit there and dream and daydream, and I encourage you to do so. It's a glorious thought what heaven would be like. But is it a glorious thought what next week will be like in the assembly of the believers? I believe David, on his best days, which probably were not few and far between, as far as his affections were concerned, loved every moment he could assemble with God's people. If there was uh, the Levitical priest joining in worship and song, he was going to join them. And even though he was king, he might even sacrifice a little dignity and dance. The occasion was certainly worth it. The Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing the presence and favor of the Lord, was coming. What is the appropriate response? David knew Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. What is the appropriate response? I pray we know to celebrate together, to worship, to let our affections rise to the standard of what God's great work has done for us and promised for us. I had a supernatural moment. I have more than I recall. It's just our sin, I think, sometimes that we don't recognize them as often as they appear. Yesterday in family prayer, in the morning we were praying that God would use Gene and Marissa's testimony to inspire more of us in listening to be as exuberant and chomping at the bit, as it were, as they were when willing to share. And then I closed the prayer time, with, we closed the prayer time with the family, and I went back to my studying for this message. I was reading Spurgeon, and this is the next sentence that I read in his commentary. Each saint is a witness to divine faithfulness and should be ready with his testimony. I'll read you the whole paragraph. 
This is speaking of Psalm 26. The song began in the minor, at its minor key, but it has now reached the major key. Saints often sing themselves into happiness. The even place upon which our foot stands is the sure covenant faithfulness, eternal promise, and immutable oath of the Lord of hosts. There is no fear of falling from this solid basis or of its being removed from under us, established in Christ Jesus by being vitally united to Him. We have nothing left to occupy our thoughts but the praises of our God. Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And when assembled, let us not be slow to contribute our portion of thanksgiving. Each saint is a witness to divine faithfulness and should be ready with his testimony. As for the slanderers, let them howl outside the door while the children sing within. You and I, if you share in the blood of Jesus Christ this morning, are privileged to be the children who sing within. And I pray as a consequence of the testimonies we've heard and God's word delivered this morning, my faith, your faith, our joy and affections, the posture of our life would begin to walk, to sit, to handle, to abide, to stand, and to assemble in light of His great work, great glory, and holiness. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, what a gracious gift Your Word is to us, and what a gracious gift the blood of the Lamb, the Word of our testimony. And now I pray in light of these truths and promises that You would give us more grace to love not our lives unto death. But instead of loving our lives, living for the moment, for short-term gain at the expense of your glory, I pray that we would love to dwell where we dwell. That we would not forsake anything that you command, any means that you've employed to encourage and inspire us in our sanctification. That we would walk, sit, that we would hang on to, that we would abide, that we would stand, that we would assemble, and that we would run the race that is set before us, with the joy that is proportional to the sacrifice Christ made. We know, Lord, that we'll always be striving to reach that standard, but it is in that striving that we experience the glories of sanctification. May we experience more. May we experience more. And may we praise you when we see ourselves postured in the posture of integrity, and experiencing the amplitude of holiness in our testimony moving beyond this service. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.